0: The end of the Bad Quaker podcast where Liberty is our mission this podcast is for Friday March 29th 2013 and it's podcast number 292 <coughs> I have uh, I have two quick announcements to make before I introduce the guests today uh, the first announcement is for pork fest 10 which will be June 17th through 23rd at the Rogers campground Lancaster New Hampshire And uh, if you can at all make it, it's one, in my opinion, it is the premier event in the Liberty Movement uh, today. And the other event is the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo. It will be Saturday, April 27th in Exeter, New Hampshire at the Exeter Town Hall. Uh, No need for reservations. There's no charge. It's an all-day-long event. You just show up and have fun. I'm not going to be able to make it to the Seacoast Annual uh, Freedom Expo. But if you can make it, there will be plenty of people there to uh, to rub elbows with. And with me on Skype is Bill Bupert from ZeroGov. And Bill, uh, welcome back again to the Bad Quaker podcast.
1: Always an honor, Ben. Thank you.
0: You've got um, – uh, you had an article that uh, brought a little bit of a stir, <laughs> possibly just because of the way you titled uh, the article, but also – I think the content was kind of radical for a lot of people, but I, when I read it, I was just like, "Yes, this is exactly what needs to be said." And the title of that article, um, scrolling down so I don't get it wrong, is uh, sure. Re- "Repeal the Second Amendment" by Bill Bupert. Soonest. and uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, now I saw that as sort of a sort of a, a gauntlet tossed. Um, like, like let's let's do this Let, you want to you know you want to dance the music's playing let's go um, how, how did you mean that article to be taken
1: I, I think that you've uh, you've quite literally gone to the distillate of it is that I am so tired of simmering I am so tired of waiting for things to come to a boil I am so tired of the uh, the the death or near death of a thousand cuts and and if if gun prohibition, Victim disarmament, citizen disarmament, subject disarmament—whatever phrase you want to use to characterize what the federal government seeks to do, let's just go for it. Let's let's just uh, let, let's stop with the the incremental deaths that we have suffered over the 20th century. You know, we we start with the 1934 National Firearms Act. We go into on 1939 U.S. v. Miller, where there wasn't even a private attorney for the defendant in the case. We go to the 1968 Gun Control Act, the 1984 McClure Volkmer Act, with 1989 Cosmetically Offensive Weapons Prohibition by by Bush one. We go to the Nix check. We go to the 94 Cosmetically Offensive Weapons Ban. We we go to all of these things, and and to me, it's fairly clear when I read the 1828 Dictionary, which is my lexicon for the Constitution and the contemporary language and, and semiotics they used at the time infringed hasn't changed in 250 years yet every one of those is an infringement and also there's this popular notion and i had to research this because i try to practice specificity in my language and and in my writing there's this notion of 20,000 gun laws on the books my my estimation is that there are three to five hundred gun laws on the books from which emanate echoes at the local county and state level throughout the union so i I, I'd like to put that to bed. So that's why in my article I mentioned three to five hundred laws instead of 20,000 laws. I'd like to see every one of them off the books. Yeah, or, uh, you
0: know, or let's enforce them. Let's go and watch what happens in America when, when you and, really try and that, to take them.
1: You're right. And that's precisely the point that I made in, in, in another rhetorical tool that I employed was that those of us who are old enough can remember about, I guess, a decade or two ago where they were talking about reparations in which – those who were brought over here under shameful conditions or in the Atlantic slave trade of of any melanin condition and the indentured servitude and such, 95% of whom, by the way, went below the American border at the time to to various fates, most of them resulting in a very vicious death down south and south of Central America. And they said, what we want to do is we want Reparations. Reparations means legally defined, return, returning to your original state. In this case, they did not want to be repatriated to Africa as Lincoln champion during most of his life when he wanted to remove every black human being from America once slavery was abolished and move them back to Africa because he did not want to live in Congress with them or, or live with them at all or have have them among him in any capacity. Now, what they wanted reparations is they wanted money. They wanted a wealth transfer, a redistribution from contemporary pockets to the pockets of descendants of slaves. And I thought, wow, you know what, if they if they ever got any traction with that politically, where it was in the Congress and, and the executive was going to take action on it, I couldn't think of anything to make the race question in America more realistic or more fruitful than that kind of threat, which is basically what it was. I see the same thing here. You know, you, you, I, I'm a man of the gun, Ben. I'm, I'm not acquainted with with uh, with your relevance in the gun community. And when I say that, I don't mean how important you are as a voice. I mean how important it is to your heart to be armed. But of course, being a bad Quaker after and I love that phrase by the way, being a bad Quaker means that you like being armed, so you can speak to that. But in the end, what it means is that. As a man of the gun, I, I am tired of being effed with. I, I am tired of, of having my rights infringed. I'm tired of having to be solicitous of the most ridiculous regulations designed by haplophobic people whose closest proximity to a gun has probably been in, in the holster of a cop because they've never laid hands on one. So I, I, I thought to, to bring this to a head, to take the whole discussion and get really realistic about it, those who wish to repeal the Second Amendment, those who wish to be to prohibit guns, just bring it on and say that's what you want to do. Just be truthful. Stop, Stop biting around the edges and come out with legislation that declares you will no longer be able to own any weapon whatsoever.
0: If I were going to make a wager, I would probably bet on the side that when you start to climb into a swimming pool, you just get in the water. You don't put your toe in and warm up a little bit and Are you a rip-off-the-band-aid or work-it-off-slowly kind of a guy?
1: I'm a, uh, I'm a Thoreau, I'm inspired by Thoreau, and of course, uh, Strike the Root is is another pretty good liberty site on the web, and uh, what Thoreau meant when he said Strike the Root was he said, you can trim the weeds all day, and I'm paraphrasing here, you can trim the weeds all day long, but if you don't strike the root, if you don't get to the root of the problem, you're doing nothing but minor maintenance, but you're not resolving the issue at hand.
0: And when, when you... uh Strike at the Constitution in in a very real way, and I'm pretty sure you agree with me on this. In in a very real way, the Constitution might very well be the root of our problem.
1: Thank you, Ben. You you know you're right. I drank the constitutional Kool Aid for for most of my uh, most of my adult life, and and then probably I guess it was 2007 2008. And we've discussed this before. That book by Boston Tea Party, aka Kenneth Royce, called the Hologram of Liberty. Really turned me around, and that was sort of like the the, um, the jumping off point for me to examine the origins of the Constitution and what it means when people say, "Well, we need to go back to a constitutional republic," or what descriptive value does the word unconstitutional have? In my mind, it has no descriptive value whatsoever. If you look at the raft of gun laws that I described a few minutes earlier, that that have that have been issued and sanctified through various executive agencies in the United States, despite what the Constitution says. So I think I think the Constitution is probably one of the most canny and cunning propaganda instruments to chain and manacle a people that has ever been devised in mankind's history.
0: I would have to agree with that 100%. Uh, you know, Boston Tea Party talked about it as being, uh, uh, how did he say it, about the, the founding lawyers? That's what he that, called exactly,
1: it. Exactly, exactly. Well, it was a political I, coup.
0: It, it absolutely was. It was a small group of individuals, some of whom were not even elected to be to go there. Not that I have any faith in elections, but but some of the people at the Continental Congress were not elected to be there. Specifically, George Washington, who showed up in a military uniform and essentially used intimidation tactics to take over. Uh, I mean, it was it's your typical. Uh, it's your typical coup where where you have um, you know back, background in, investors, uh, money people, and you have the military leadership, and they come in and they take over the political body. That's exactly what happened with the Constitutional Convention.
1: It's what Edward Lutwak would call a coup de main because there's various species of coups, but this one was a coup de main. And, and I think it's, it's interesting that you would bring up the point that, and I'd never thought about that before, Ben, that... That uh, George Washington shows up in his military garb because there's a, there's a natural proclivity in human beings, much like people who don the color black, to have a, um, an almost subservient attitude towards those in uniform. It's sort of been bred into us. I don't know if it's quite genetic, but I know society-wise we, we have a lot of hero worship going on. Of of all the the uh, the uniform depredations we have visited on the globe since 1893, and we're to celebrate those, We're to say, wow! If it, if, if it weren't for uh, for armed forces going over and and uh, and maiming and killing all of those people, our freedoms would be in the hazard. I, I I can't I can't think of anything more iatrogenic than that. That that's a medical term that means achieving exactly 180 degrees out of what you set out to do
0: yeah well, Washington uh, a lot of this has been lost in, you know in, in government-sponsored history, but Washington had a core group of officers and, uh, and actually infantrymen that were extremely uh, maybe fanatically dedicated to him and, um, and and it was always well known that where he was, they were nearby. so this it was, was a of uh,
1: personality.
0: It, it very much was. He he had a very dynamic personality, and he was also, for his day, a very tall man. And a very, from, from the uh, uh, descriptions of the day, he had large, powerful legs, and, this, and he showed them off in his dress, which was, at some points in time, that it might have been considered sort of dandy, the way he dressed. But in his time frame, when he was alive, it was uh, considered uh, almost... Sexually provocative of a man to show his legs the way that he did and he did so uh, Not only to turn the eyes of the of the ladies, but to sort of place himself among the men as a natural leader Um, And then you know knowing that he's got troops nearby was also a factor
1: He was also a natural horseman and of course we we know that the the horse has a uh, another preternatural perception among humans especially if someone is astride and he is in, in some very elegant or, or, or spectacle-like regalia, and he's a military man, much like the pictures of Julius Caesar that we see, you'll see Julius Caesar statues. Half the time, he is astride a horse. It's, it's yet another extension of power. It's yet another emblem of, of overwhelming power over you as an individual.
0: Yeah, the same goes with Napoleon. One of the great classic Napoleon uh, statues is Napoleon on his horse showing his, uh, uh, his horsemanship. Indeed. Um, I found a letter. I don't know if we talked about this the last time uh, we talked or not, but I found a letter from Washington to Henry Lee. And if you read the letter, I think most people would not pick up on this. But having been in an industry where intimidation – uh, okay, let me just. For any new listeners that don't know, uh, I used to hang around with a lot of bikers. This is back in the late '70s and stuff, and uh, and uh, drug deals, and bikers, and collections, and you know, uh, going around and making deals that were outside of the law and black black market underground stuff. And there I'd was never terminology. Have your photograph Ben. you would think i'm a harmless minister huh (laughs) well you could be
1: you could be an extra on sons of anarchy
0: Um, but there was a language that you used when you spoke to somebody like nobody nobody among us would walk up and say pay me five hundred dollars by tuesday or i'm gonna bust your arm nobody would say that it wasn't done but what you would say is things like you know, uh, we have this issue, and we need to resolve this, and I don't think your method is getting it resolved, and I'd hate to see anything happen. And you say words like that, you know, and, and there's no threat. You didn't, well, you're smiling the whole time. You've got maybe your hand on his shoulder, and you're looking right in his eyes, and you're saying, you know, you've got this young family. I wouldn't want anything to happen to him. I hope you have insurance. And you say things like that in a way, that, uh, that nothing can ever be put back on you to say, but he threatened me. And Washington's letter to, um, Henry Lee was in regards to a letter that Henry Lee had said about the, um, about Shay's rebellion, that this is a thing that's happening up North. And we down here in Virginia need to not worry about it. It's not our business and the thing will work its way. It'll work itself out. And if those farmers who are having their land taken, if, they, uh, uh, if they're in the right, they should be able to work out their problem, you know, for themselves. And if the government up there that's taking their land is in the right, then they can work that out for themselves. And Washington wrote this letter back to Lee, and he says, basically, you know, I don't really like your solution. And I think the solution is a powerful federal government with a military. And if you don't really like my solution— I think maybe, and I'm paraphrasing him, I'm saying it like a biker would in 1979, I think maybe we can come and visit you and we can figure this out in a way that I'd be happy with. You know, And, and you can just read the intimidating way that he said this to Henry Lee. I, I'd read it, actually I should have had it up if I was going to refer to it, but,
1: but you can read between I've, the lines. I've, I've never seen that, and, and I think that, um, I, I think it's so interesting because he's become... Like the Constitution and and the uh, the parchment idolatry that follows it, it's the same thing with George Washington. You know, it's been drilled into every government school student's head that he was not only the indispensable man, but he was he was almost a marble man like Robert E. Lee, in which he could do no wrong. Yet we see in his grasping and and his his manipulation. And his Machiavellian yen for power, which I think was informed a lot by his evil little medium, Alexander Hamilton, that he, he, he was just yet another despot, yet another tyrant, yet another consolidator who, who sought to put together a tax jurisdiction where he could have a, um, a, a very large cattle ranch from which he could make wealth. Uh,
0: if you don't mind, um, would, you, would you mind if we'd pick on Robert E. Lee for a moment? <laughs> Let's do so. Uh, I've always thought that he made a horrible blunder in his trust of the traditional, almost Napoleonic-style fighting that he he had been trained in and was maybe one of the world's experts in at the time, but I've always felt that had he just said, you know what, we shouldn't face this army-to-army in that kind of a clash. We should tell every farmer, every mountaineer in Appalachia, everybody in the bayous— that, uh, we'll just take them out, you know, one shot at a time and turn it into a guerrilla warfare and never even, uh, initially made the conflict in by major armies. What's your opinion on that?
1: Well, I'd like to make a proposition and that would be this. If you put a Marxoid hat on or a collectivist hat or whatever the case may be, do you think that you would view the world different and your behavior would be different than it is right now as may I be presumptuous enough to say that you and I are both abolitionists?
0: Absolutely. Sure.
1: Yeah. So so if we weren't, we weren't even anti-slavery, but we were both slavers, would that mindset inform our behavior?
0: I'm sure it would have to, yeah.
1: It would have to. Robert E. Lee was a creature of the Mexican-American War of West Point and of his own gentlemanly Christianity. I think the triad of those three things made it out of the question— and a non-option for him to assume that guerrilla warfare could be conducted. Now, I do suspect that in the Western theater, which he wasn't in charge of, he may have looked the other way when it came to Mosby and, and some of the other things that were going on there that were a little more unconventional than the conventional fights he was engaged in. But I simply don't think it was within Robert E. Lee's span of vision to see fighting in that fashion, even though the vice president of the Confederacy at the time, Alexander Stevens, from 63 to 65 said, we need to do exactly what Ben just described, and we need to go to ground, and and, and we need to let, let the Yankee Nation come in here, and then we will take them out in detail in an unconventional fashion. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what he wanted to achieve. I, I think so. Uh, you know, and, and
0: that's really the strength of guerrilla warfare is that people like you described uh, Robert E. Lee to be um, – most cases, they can't imagine in their minds how powerful guerrilla warfare is.
1: They they cannot. And what you discover, for instance, in Afghanistan is that after – and the same applies to Iraq in our current fight, in the federal government's current fight. I need to correct that. Somebody corrected me on my forum about that. They said, Bill, you need to stop saying ours when you're referring to government actions. So I'm trying to wean myself off of that and make sure I practice more specificity. But when you look at Afghanistan, in the capital city of Kabul, after 12 years and more than a trillion dollars spent fighting the Mujahideen and the Haqqani Network and the Taliban and the hundreds of different resistance organizations spread throughout Afghanistan, you cannot cross the street from one American compound to another coalition compound a mere five meters without putting on full protective gear to include your body armor, your PC, Weapon ready, and you have to be in up-armored vehicles, whether they're SUVs or the uh, the mine-proof vehicles like the MRAPS and stuff that are fielded over there. Uh, it, it, that is a testament to the power of guerrilla warfare, because the hyperpower military nation astride planet Earth is, without a doubt, the United States. In both, well, I would say, in certainly conventional military technology, unconventional, the United States military, military still does not get it, still doesn't understand. That the military, if they do conduct in a counterinsurgency, must be the junior partner. While 85% of all monies that are spent in both Iraq and Afghanistan are spent conducting a counterinsurgency, in which those are all military funding, which, mm. which means that you're, you're we're always going 12 steps forward and 25 steps back.
0: And, and I might point out too, in reference to Kabul, if you if you take the U.S. presence completely out of the question. And you look at the entire region historically, right around Kabul has been um, the most the, – the culture there is the most statist in the whole country. You get out away from Kabul very far, and uh, statism is just not in the mind of those people.
1: Ben, that's a, that's a savvy observation because what happens in Kabul is that it uh, Afghanistan is an imaginary country, and I admire them for that because outside of Kabul – Afghanistan doesn't exist as a country per se. The 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 one thing that I find interesting in American foreign policy is that I would I would suggest that America's number one foreign policy export is large central government. That is the solution set that we seek to embrace in anything that we do in this rapid hyper extension that we have of of busying ourselves and meddling around the globe. Some of that's come back to bite us in the butt. Bite. The United States government, in the butt. for instance, Hezbollah, when they took on the IDF in 2006, spanked the IDF, a, a legendary and apocryphal force that had been uh, uh, touted as one of the finest military forces that's ever been fielded. Well, they they got their asses handed to them in 2006 with Hezbollah. When the American foreign policy says we want to have plebiscites, we want to have democracy in the Arab world. Well, what do they get in Egypt and what do they get in Lebanon and what do they get in in potentially Syria, well, they get exactly what they didn't want, but they get it nonetheless, and they're going to get it good and hard, much like democracy promises for everybody, is that whatever you vote for, you're going to get that good and hard. I also think, as, as a side observation, what's interesting about Libya is that since 1975 in the Church Committee, there has been a prohibition. Now, of course, I say this with quote, quotitude air, a prohibition on assassination of national leaders. We saw a difference here, where I would I would suggest to you that what happened to Gaddafi was a sanctioned assassination of that leader by a western power. That opens the yeah. door to some interesting legal interpretation because I have always been of a mind that politicians involved in war, if they declare war, if they're party to a war, whatever the case may be, should not be non-combatants. The entire political class of a warring nation should assume combatant status and assume the risks that come with that.
0: I, uh, I said something like that early on, uh, probably 2002 or so, um, that, you know, if, if the U.S. government is intent upon going into Afghanistan and, and going into Iraq and going into these places, then, um, uh, then the actual decision makers in the military should be on the ground there. They shouldn't be in Washington, D.C., and that includes the politicians.
1: Well, I agree 100%. And, and I think that the, the other thing that does is, is that you and I both know, as, as Austrians, that incentives are the core of how human beings behave. And the incentive, of course, if the, the entire political class becomes combatants, is that they better think twice about declarations of war or military depredations they wish to visit on other countries because they will find themselves personally and physically in the hazard as a result of that.
0: And of course, uh, we've we've kind of donned our statist hat when we were even talking about this because, as you mentioned earlier, uh, both you and I are uh, abolitionists, which we can define as uh, we would prefer the entire abolition of all slavery, including slavery of uh, of people like us, what might be considered soft slavery, uh, where it's you know you're bound by a taxation system and a federal government and dominated over by layers and layers and layers of laws and regulations we we would how, abolish all of that
1: how interesting that you would call it soft slavery and and i'm not a, i'm not criticizing the point ben but in the end and i think the reason why why most people have the perception that it's a soft slavery is that they don't associate the fining, kidnapping caging maiming and killing that results from various levels of resistance to taxation alone that does that makes it not so soft, and I understand your perspective completely because this is how it's been sculpted and molded as a perception: is that our payment of taxes, our compliance with regulations, and our obedience is first and foremost the pillar of civilizational standards. I mean, it's it's, it's taken civilization and put it put it on its head. It's like uh, Marx says. Uh, out of Arizona, he he runs a uh, I can't I can't remember his last name, but he says, you know, government is a provision of goods and services at the point of a gun. And, and I think to myself, well, that that's uh, that, that's pretty much the distillate of what it is. But again, like the Constitution, the entire framework, this entire matrix, to use a, a tire cliche, has been sculpted and molded and massaged to give people the impression that the barbarity that they're conducting on an everyday basis, which is what collectivism is, is not only fine, but laudable.
0: Yeah. um, On that point, let me uh, stick in a break here, save this file. Uh, I've had some really bad experiences with Skype lately. So let me save this file, and folks, we'll be right back in about uh, 60 seconds with more with Bill Bupert. Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365, live technical support, and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com, and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. And thanks for sticking with me through the break. And this has been Stone with Bad Quaker Podcast on the line with Bill Bupert of uh, ZeroGov. Uh, Bill, I wanted to bring up something that I saw on the Internet uh, just the other day. And it's kind of uh, it, it kind of applies to what we're talking about here there it was a one of these police brutality you know uh, YouTube videos, and this was a uh, predominantly black inner city neighborhood. and there was one gentleman who was having a verbal confrontation with the police. It was strictly verbal. and one of the cops uh, clearly got a little out of control, charged the guy. Grabbed him. Did the uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's where you grab the guy from the back by the neck and throw him to the ground, which is actually a, a move that can cause death if if it's not done correctly. Indeed. And uh, there, th- and then there was the typical piling on and beating of the guy. Now the thug's- there was, yeah, and there was a there was a, another resident, a neighbor that was across the street and observed this and started yelling that, you know, that's not necessary. You don't need to do that. He is not a threat to you. He was just talking, you, you know, and he's, and of course, as soon as they secure the first victim, uh, they go after the second and he makes the fatal mistake of running. Um, and if you've ever been around, uh, like, uh, any kind of large breed of dog, the quickest way for the dog's brain to shut off and it t- to go to its, to its, uh, primeval, uh, functions is for something to run away from it. And it immediately clicks into the predator mode and goes after it. And, um, and I, and I'm not saying this to be derogatory towards police. It's a simple fact that, uh, when you run from a cop, that's exactly what happens in the cop's mind. It's just like what happened. And I'm not, you know, I love dogs and I'm not saying anything derog- derogatory against anybody by referring to dog behavior because I love dogs. But when you run from a cop, you click in their mind the exact same behavior that goes in a dog's mind, and he will attack almost anything that runs from him uh, unless he's you know, hyperly trained not to. And that's Well, it's what also because this,
1: that, that gentleman wasn't obeying them.
0: Yeah, and it's all about obedience and domination.
1: It's all about obedience. It's not about criminality.
0: So the, so the second guy, the neighbor who was complaining, he runs. The cops, of course, uh, there's the second beat down that happens. And, uh, and you also hear helico- a helicopter comes in. You see literally like eight or 10 cop cars just come screaming in, and they literally just take over the neighborhood. Now the thing that struck me in this video was there in, in, in every uh, I've spent some time in inner city neighborhoods. and there's one of the things that I like about inner city neighborhoods is there's often a, more of a front porch culture. Than you see out in suburbia a lot of people are okay. in their front yard a lot of people are on their porches There's talking back and forth people stand on the sidewalk and talk to people on their porches All of that was non-existent in this video. If you didn't know better, you'd think the entire neighborhood was vacant Everybody was inside, but they were looking through their windows And I and it struck me that what we, what I was looking at was a 21st century version of of uh, of the slave being taken out to the whipping post and being whipped as an example for all the other slaves. And all the other slaves were forced to watch, but they had to stand back a certain distance. And not one of them would dare do anything about it because they knew what would happen to them if they did.
1: You know, the, the whole milieu that you've just described, it, it horrifies me. It takes place thousands of times a week, I suspect. I, I, I don't have a number because police departments are notorious for the 19,000 police departments in these United States are notorious for underreporting or non-reporting of the abuse that they visit on people who ultimately have no conviction whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they're arrested and released. I'd love to see what those numbers are. It's it's horrific to me, and, and I have a broken record to a certain extent, Ben, but, but I, I do stand by the prognostication that if it weren't for police, no matter who your political bad actor is, that political bad actor could not take away any individual right or deprive anybody of their liberty absent a police force. I think that when when it comes to uh, – as a matter of fact, I saw a video the other day of, of some brutality, but I saw another video that a friend of mine had sent me and it was a just a snapshot, and it showed Occupy Wall Street on one side, and the caption read, wants more government, and the police were on the other side, and that caption read, here it is. Because o- yeah. ultimately, in, in, in order for government to exist, it cannot do it absent the stick. It cannot do it absent the ability to give people a wood shampoo. And And in the end, what it comes down to is that If you don't have the ability to opt out, which I would suggest that gentleman was trying to do was opt out of the entire situation by running because he knew what he was in for. If you don't have the ability to opt out, no true true freedom exists. And I think that that is probably the canary in the coal mine or the mark on the wall to determine how ultimate your freedom is. If you and I have the opportunity to opt out of paying for police or opt out of being members of Obamacare or opt out of not paying property taxes, that's true freedom. Until that happens, everything else is faux freedom.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let me shift gears a little bit here. Uh, otherwise, we'll spend the whole <laughs> the whole thing talking about that topic, uh, which would be okay too, but I've got Bill Bupert on the line. I don't want to waste uh, the whole time on, on one topic, because specifically now I'm going to, uh, there's a little fluffing for you here, Bill, um, because okay. Bill Bupert, <laughs> in my opinion, is a true Renaissance man. This is a guy who can talk to you on any topic, and he can do it uh, in an intelligent manner, and he can do it with some of the best terminology. Uh, that's not even good terminology. <laughs> it's, it's, it's some of the uh, the most precise language abilities of anybody I know. But, very uh, kind. The, <laughs> the thing that I wanted to shift over to was um, that I found out by listening to the uh, interview you did with Michael Dean not long ago, that um, uh, that you were somewhat involved in the James Randi's uh, uh, research and so forth that he was doing for a while.
1: Well, I wasn't directly involved with James Randi, and some, some background for your listeners is uh, I was a member of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. James Randi is a skeptic, and a skeptic in, in this milieu means that uh, ESP, uh, Sasquatch, paranormal phenomenon, all of those kind of things—not conspiracies necessarily, but all of those kind of things like uh, telekinesis and and ghosts. And I, I've I've always been a severe skeptic of paranormal phenomenon, and, a, and and I'm also a severe skeptic of of superstitious phenomenon to include religion, even though I'm not an atheist. I, I want to um, I want to stipulate I'm an agnostic because there just isn't sufficient evidence how can i disprove something that's a negative in this case which is why i i can't ever find myself being an atheist and i and i have to admit and and i hope that i don't um, ask anybody up for saying this but i find atheists to be intellectually irritating to a certain extent where it, it's to me it's 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 something like being a member of the 1956 frozen dinner collectors association you guys can go on with that if you wish, but you really have nothing to contribute to my life, nor do I have any interest whatsoever in the specifics of of why it's important to you and how it could be important to me potentially. Now I may think as 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 I advance in my antiquity and and this mortal coil beckons me to cross the river Styx. Maybe I'll uh, I'll have a a more hyper attenuated religious sensitivity, but right now that ain't the case. Back to James Randi. James Randi had a standing one million dollar offer to anybody, whether they're paranormal practitioners or observers, to prove psi phenomenon under controlled experimental conditions with blinds. As of yet, no one has passed the test. I don't think these tests are cooked. I just think that the tests are, uh, are, are very scientifically effective in, in, in showing that paranormal activity, for the most part, is false. It's a false consciousness. It's anti-intellectual and to a large extent, I think it sort of diverts us from what some of the more real and palpable issues are we should be facing today. Now, the connection I made with Michael when I had the interview, and by the way, Michael, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoy uh, talking with Michael. Uh, the connection I made was that I found it astonishing that these same folks tended to be collectivists in their orientation, these, these skeptics. The institutional skeptics, such as James Randi and some of the other folks behind Skeptical Inquirer and Skeptic Magazine, Michael Shermer's magazine out of Southern California, they, they tend to be champions of of global warming as a phenomenon that, that is both correlative and causative. And, and they say, yea and verily, it is scientific fact. And they tend to embrace what what's called secular humanism, which Steve Allen championed for the longest time, who is also a skeptic. You and I are old enough to remember who Steve Allen was. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I found it curious. Here you have the skepticism of the paranormal. I'm on board. I'm all on board. I'm all in. Yet, you are champions of a collectivist phenomenon that is not only empirically provable to be so harmful, but you refuse to acknowledge that. So I, I – I just found it to be an interesting dichotomy. I think that's what Michael and I were discussing. Is that, is that the case, Ben?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I brought it up too, because I, right. I really, I saw that uh, with not so much James Randy personally, but with those that surround him in in you know the uh, the conversation in the posting boards and so forth. This was back in the early 2000s, and so I wandered away from all that because it, it was very frustrating.
1: So, were you also a skeptic, Ben?
0: I, you know, they would never, they would kick me, they would be kind of like me calling myself a Quaker among Quakers. Uh, (laughs) I would have to be called a bad skeptic, because I would almost (laughs) describe myself the way you described yourself. I can't prove that there's a God, but I can't disprove it either. Um, And so I can't make a definitive statement one way or the other. And if anybody else does, immediately I have a certain amount of discredit in my mind for them if they make that statement definitive in either direction.
1: You know, I I am... I am under resourced enough to apprehend everything that happens in the world around me in this mortal coil, much less uh, making observations about a supernatural world that I can touch with none of my senses, nor apprehend in a fashion where I can have a consensus with others.
0: That's a good way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are, uh, are you, uh, shifting gears again, are you planning on being so, at uh, Porkfest uh, 2013?
1: No, I'm not. In a. Uh, by the way, I meant to mention. I want to mention two things, if if I may be so bold as to not hijack the program, but to take it into a, a different direction for two small reasons. Number one, I am so sorry I missed you at Pork Fest 2012. Uh, apparently, you and I were ships passing the night, and I was never able to shake your hand and and you and I sit down and have a uh, a brew or adult beverage together during that time. But I'm going to make good on that in 2014 if you show up. And the second thing I wanted to mention was that Michael mentioned to me that it was your daughter who brought you across the Rubicon to abolitionism, anarchism, uh, however you want to l- 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 phrase that. And and it was so funny because it is my eldest son who brought me across the Rubicon because for the, for the longest time, I was sort of stuck in an intellectual stasis as a minarchist and had never asked the deeper questions that would probably – quite literally place me in a trebuchet on one side of the Rubicon and fling me which my son did onto the other side and as michael and i said and and you and i i think we've mentioned in the past once you become an abolitionist once you become stateless once once you become somebody who sees virtue in the positions we take we can't go back we're we are here uh, you know there were during the 20th century there were a lot of folks and I hate using the term left and right, Ben, but I'm going to just for this this one moment. A lot of folks on the left emigrated to the right. We see a lot of the neoconservatives today who are just – it's its an evil philosophical bent in my mind, and especially as practiced in, in politics. But they have their roots in Trotskyism. So you can see that left to right immigration, but you rarely see an immigration from right to left or from individualist to collectivist where somebody has retained their intellectual honesty. So I just want to bring those two points up briefly.
0: In my case with my daughter, you know, well, if I go back in my own life, all the way back to the seventies when I was in high school and, you know, well into the beginning of the eighties before I had any children or anything, um, I always, in my mind, I always felt that government was pretty much useless at, at best. It was harmful in most cases and even in high school, I was saying that the only thing government can really do with any efficiency is blow up cities and kill people. But at the same time, you know, even well up into the late 90s, I still thought, well, you know, there's got to be something that I'm not grasping fully that government, that some purpose that government serves. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the marketplace uh, you, you know, oddly enough, my faith in the market was such that I believed um, surely the government serves some purpose; otherwise, it would become obsolete, and nobody would buy it anymore. And it it wasn't so. I was I was thinking, and I was teaching these ideas to my children, but I wasn't philosophically taking them all all the way to their end point until uh, around 2000. Two or so, I think it was about 2002. And my daughter started really cornering me in and you use the Rubicon as an example. Um, and, and, and when Caesar got to, he brought his army to there and he crossed and he went over, left his army behind and then he checked things out and then he came back and he brought his army across the Rubicon. That was a, like you're describing, it's a moment that you cannot undo. It's a time when you say, you know, that's it. I think, I think it was Minken that said, there comes a time in a man's life when he has to spit on his hands, hoist the black fa- flag, and start cutting And slit
1: up your throats. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> and you can't undo something like that. And and that's, uh, in, in, in my case, I felt like my daughter cornered me up against the Rubicon and left me no uh, no way out, no logical and no moral way out. And I was – I I swam across the Rubicon, gritting my teeth and pounding the water with my fist at each stroke because it was the last thing I wanted to do. But I had absolutely no intellectual choice, uh, no moral choice, and it was just time to march in.
1: Well, the good thing about that, though, was that you weren't swimming across the River Styx, but you were crossing the Rubicon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So – I love the I, I love these uh these allegories to the ancients because I'm absolutely fascinated by uh by Greek and Roman history, although I'm also guilty of, of being fascinated by practically any moment in history people expose me to if I get curious about it
0: in case we don't have some history buffs uh can you kind of tell the story of the crossing of the Rubicon i'm
1: gonna i I try to tell it in one minute It's very much like you described where Caesar was going into Gaul. And Gaul, of course, was that great Western expanse for Roman expansion at the time that he was going to make his bones with during his five-year leave from the Senate. He comes to the Rubicon. He has a small party with him. He declares to his legions, I'm I'm not going to bring you across because I don't want to invest you in any danger or hazard. I'm going to go across myself with a small party. And then he goes across, gets a lay of the land, scouts, comes back, declares to his legions that Everyone will cross the Rubicon, and so he crossed the Rubicon. By crossing the Rubicon, what Caesar had also done was not only had he taken legions into a country they had never been in, but (laughs) much like what you and I were talking about earlier with the uh, Constitutional Convention, he exceeded the brief given to him by the Senate, but eventually the Senate acquiesced because of all the riches and land that he brought through murder and expropriation to Rome, to make it a greater state. So I think that sort of sums it up. And ours is more so an intellectual rubicon, or uh, or what Shakespeare would call the undiscovered country, where you and I are, are looking at the future and saying, there's a better future in which one human being does not have ownership of another. I mean, it's such a simple, when, when you think about it, Ben, it's, it's startlingly, breathtakingly simple, what you and I advocate, which is that, Slavery is bad. You and I are Wilberforce's successors, and we are trying to finish what Wilberforce started. Yet we find ourselves not only in an intellectual minority, but to a certain extent, especially among many collectivists that I talk to, almost a laughing stock. Where they think, "What a child to uh, to think that!" What you know? What you need to grow up. You need to be realistic. You need to be practical. You need to understand that humans work best, as Democritus would tell us, when beaten into the fields. Humans work best under harness. Humans work work best under direction or under duress, because we know what's best for them. You know, it's what Hayek called the, the fatal conceit of the intellectual class to think that they could craft a future. Now, Hayek didn't say this, but this is what happens. You can craft a future in promised spilling of blood, which is what the state comes down to it is the spilling of blood but in the larger sense it's a promised spilling of blood in which if you don't comply depending on your level of resistance you may perish at the end as a result of wanting your freedom to be ultimate
0: and, and you talked about this being a new country that we're going into essentially a, a, an uncharted land that we're going into and I had two thoughts on that first off we don't know I mean, this is something we're headed towards and I believe we're going to achieve, maybe not in our lifetime, but we're going to achieve this freedom and we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know the particulars of how this will be done or how that'll be done. We only know that it is morally, uh, it, there's a moral demand that we march towards it. And at the same time, I've heard it said quite often, well, you know, and I think even, uh, Thoreau may, may have wandered into this thought at one point, um, You know, at some point in time, long time from now, when man evolves more and is more socially adapted and we can get along with each other, then maybe we can have a perfect world that's not dominated by a state. But until that happens, we have to have this domination over us because we're just too barbaric. But the thing of it is, that's a distortion of history. The vast majority of mankind's history, we have been free this blight of slavery is a temporary condition that has been with us for a wink of time and will go away. And And it won't be exactly like it was before there was a state. Um, it'll be much better in many ways, but we'll, we'll have to suffer through that ripping of the Band-Aid uh, before we get to it, I think.
1: I, I, I agree 100%, and I think that what we see here is is the undiscovered country is a tapestry of humanity, in which the ownership of one man by another is absolutely forbidden through virtue and, and, and morality. Yet I would I would submit to you it's not a, a, a tapestry that's completely uncharted territory because all of us I gave a talk in at Libertopia called um, John Q Public Anarchist and the point that I was trying to make was that every day to those doubters when when, when they ask me about this every day we practice anarchy. The reason that Ben takes care of his family isn't because you're afraid of jail time, it's because you have a moral compass. The reason that Bill meets with his friends, has dinner, has a wee dram or two, and we talk into the wee hours of the night around the fire pit or whatever the case may be, and we don't injure each other, isn't because I'm afraid of jail time or the police, it's because I have a moral compass. The reason why we treat most people, the reason why most people treat most people well, whether it's the Categorical Imperative or the Ten Commandments, However, whatever sustenance, however your moral sustenance is derived, for the most part, people are good actors and they do the right thing. But it isn't because of fear of reprisal from the state. It's because they know what the right thing is. It's what Burke would call the democracy of the dead.
0: Yeah. uh, You know, I I hate to bring this up on every podcast, but I watch animals a lot around the yard, you know, squirrels and birds and so forth. And they all – uh, have certain behavior characteristics that they do, uh, uh, and, and they're absolutely imperative for the survival of that species. You know, squirrels hide nuts, birds uh, behave in certain ways, and and so forth. And um, and they and don't have the ants have and the
1: any. grasshoppers give us a terrific collectivist versus individualist parable. Y-
0: yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do.
1: Go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Ben. That's okay, But uh, but, you know, there's
0: very um, strict rules and I I use different species at different times to explain these rules. But but if you just take the birds, for instance, uh, among um, uh, like among sparrows, sparrows will uh, uh, collectively group together and kill one sparrow if it does not behave in the way that is uh, uh, required for the flock. And that is entirely natural. To that species, and therefore it, it's uh, it's a natural law for that species to behave like that, and it's imperative that they do that in order for their species to survive. But blue jays will never gang up on another blue jay and uh, and commit capital uh, punishment on that blue jay. They are entirely independent, and yet they flock in a in a sense in in the way that if I put food out for the blue jays, and one of the blue jays sees it, he won't. Immediately fly down and eat he will sound the alarm first that there's food And once he hears back a confirmation to his alarm Then he will indulge in the food and this is a law and there's no punishment for this that I can see they don't You know, they don't gang up and beat up a a blue jay that that just flew down and ate it It's a behavior that is instinctual to this animal in order for that species to continue and human beings I believe have the same type of instinctual behaviors that are productive for our species, and one of those is uh, the understanding of property. Uh, you can see that in a baby that will grab hold of what it perceives as its, and it won't let like, and it won't let go. And the other thing is, uh, we don't like aggression upon ourselves we respond violently when there is aggression upon us and therefore it's logical that we shouldn't put aggression on other people and so i think those two principles are in us genetically as much as ducks uh, you know know what direction is north and uh, you know ants know that when the humidity changes it's time to gather in food i mean it's just instinctual to us
1: how interesting i because I, i've always thought that there's a certain celtic Anti-authoritarianism present, and and that's what's caused the Celts in Brittany and the uh, the Irish, for instance. One of my my um, my favorite insurgency topics to study is the Irish rebellion rebellion from 1916 to 1922, which was the, the the penultimate end of an 800-year struggle against Great Britain. And, and I think, to a certain extent, that speaks to it, where they wanted to organize themselves. As a society, but they wanted to organize themselves as a society within their own terms, on their own geography, absent an alien ruler from another island, quite literally, in this case. I, you know, if I, I'm not a proponent of nation states, but I think we'd be far better off instead of having 216 nations around the world to have 2,600 or, or 21,000 or 210,000 nations. I, th- I think the same thing about these United States. I think. As the Articles of Confederation envisioned it with the original 13 nation-states, they were quite literally nation-states. In 1783, when those 13 nation-states met in Paris to sue for peace and accept the uh, the peace agreement with the United Kingdom at the time, it wasn't America that accepted that. It was the the 13 separate nation-states that came to an agreement. When you read the Articles of Confederation, it's a brilliant organizational document that works in a far more effective fashion at, at establishing canton-like networks than does the Constitution, even though the usual suspects and the government media complex and the government education complex insist that the Constitution is the most perfect document, that it has all of these, these, uh, these trade-offs and compromises that put brakes on its ability to render harm onto the citizenry, you and I, though, I mean, even even the most um, least observant historians in your audience can see that that is not the case when you look at the totality of 220 years. I, I I've 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 been quoted in the past as saying that the USSR won the silver medal when it came to the collectivist Olympics, and and we are presently the gold holders.
0: That's a really good way of putting it. I would I would say that the great flaw of the Articles of Confederation is that ex that it excluded the ability of the banking military complex of the day to cash in the way they they wanted to, and that's why they responded in the way they did with the coup that they did.
1: I, I think you're right, and I would urge all of your listeners, if they get the opportunity to, to read the anti-federalist papers, to get a sense uh, of what the contemporary argument was, and also to get a sense, and this is muted by the government media and education complex, the sheer terror the entire citizenry felt at the at the possibility of the Constitution being ratified as they had read it in the papers. People were horrified. That's why Rhode Island objected, it, objected to it by 16 to 1 in the only plebiscite on the Constitution by the people instead of the respective legislatures. They were horrified that after fighting for eight years, well, what was going to happen was what they had fought against in London was coming back except it was going to be homegrown.
0: Yeah, very well said. Uh, I need to uh, I need to save this file and uh, uh, this might be the end of the show. We've got an hour for yeah. I guess it would be the end of the show for today. Yeah. And then uh, as Bill and I discussed before we started recording today, uh, we definitely want to continue this conversation because this is not a uh, uh, you know like in in every time that I that I can I make a podcast have a beginning a middle and an end. But a conversation with Bill Bupert doesn't go like that. I mean, this conversation could go on forever. You and I could uh, – Bill, you and I could sit here and talk about these things literally for four or five hours straight until we just collapsed in exhaustion.
1: Well, you are very kind, and I would hope that adult beverages would be included in that. And uh, we'll,
0: We will. Go ahead. And, I'm sorry.
1: And, and I'd also like to uh, mention ZeroGov.com. Anybody who's interested, come to ZeroGov.com. I also have a forum that is quite lively. And I have a book on Amazon called Zero Gov.
0: Thanks, Bill. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, and I hope we can do this again really soon.
1: I do too, Ben. And, and again, what an honor, and I love our conversations.
0: Folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission.